Welcome. So it's class number two, Profits on Wall Street. Today, your head's going to spin if you've not been through this before. There's going to be an elephant that's going to loom over the room probably at about noon. I'm sorry, about about 1.32 o'clock. And it's going to thunk on your plate hard. No kidding. And you're going to go, holy crap, I have no idea what all this stuff is. And you're going to be thoroughly confused by the time you leave tonight. That is absolutely normal. Okay? Don't worry about it. Everybody that's been through this before, at the end of this session, they walk out and they go, good God, I don't even know what's going on. And at that point, everything will start to just kind of fall into place. So just understand your head's going to swim today. What that really means is this, and this will apply for every single session you sit through. Do not try and digest what I'm going to talk about. Write it down. Don't, if I say something, you're kind of pondering it. Don't think about it and then try to put it in your own words and then write it down. If you do that, you'll miss the next four minutes of what I say. And then what'll happen is you'll come back, take the class again three, six, nine months from now, and you'll say, God, you said the greatest thing. You've never said it before. And I know I've said it in every single class. It's just that you tuned out for that four-minute period where I said it. And so what I'd urge you to do to avoid that is you write down everything that I said. Don't try and digest it. Don't try and translate it. Don't just write it the way I say it. There's a reason I say it the way I say it. Then when you go back and go through your notes, it will be right there for you. So jot down everything I say. Easiest way to get through it. Uh, let's see what else. So I think we'll go through me talking an hour and a half or so till about 1.30. We'll take lunch, 45 minutes to an hour. Then we'll watch the elephant land on your plate. It's really fun being at the front of the room when you guys get the oh shit moment. And it's going to happen to all of you. It's, it's always fun to be the, the distiller of the pain, if you will. So let's see. From the first class, a couple key points. 5% of this is how to do. 95% of this is how to think. And it requires following a set of rules 100% of the time. You have to have discipline to follow the rules. Here's what's going to happen if you don't follow the rules. One of three things. You'll quit or you'll go bankrupt, or you'll get tired of getting your butt kicked and you'll start following the rules. Three things are going to happen, and that's not my rules, that's the rules of the stock market. You've got to have a set of rules that you follow. That's why the discipline comes into play with this. It's absolutely crucial. There is no, and it's kind of like, it's being pregnant. You're not kind of pregnant. You don't kind of follow the rules. It's a yes-no question. You either do or you don't which means you're either disciplined or you're not. It's that cut and dried. And you'll know very quickly if you're acting in a disciplined fashion because your trading results will show you. It's the quickest report card I've ever seen in life on how you're doing against your rules. If you're doing well, you'll see it. If you're doing poorly, you'll see it. It stares you right in the face you can't hide. It's awesome. It's also frightening. So if that bothers you, be prepared. You're about to get scared. So 5% of this is how to do, 95% how to think. What that means is don't deviate. Follow the rules. Don't experiment. Say, what if I do this? I've already done it, which is why I laid the rules out the way they are. Don't deviate. Take it this way. If, you, if there's some of us that have the attitude, they're like, oh, he said it worked. Let me just do it the way he said it. Cool. Others of you will say, you know what? I want to do it my own way because I'm just, you know, I'm like the wild eyebrow that kind of pokes out, right? And I want to see if I can do it my own way. Try this. 
Try this on for size. Prove me wrong. Do it my way and prove to me it doesn't work. Prove that my way doesn't work. You can get it, if you can prove that, please come see me. I've never had anyone do it. Prove that it doesn't work. And if you get to that point, then you can go tweak the rules all you want. Okay? So however, whatever attitude you want to take on that, I don't care, as long as you follow the rules. If you try and prove me wrong, you'll end up becoming my biggest fan. It's not my fan, it's the fan of the rules. This stuff works, but you've just got to do it. You've got to put it into practice. Chantel, there's one right here if you want, about four rows up. So from the first class, what did we learn? How many accounts do we have? Four, what are they? First one is a trading account. Basic rules on the trading account. What's our trade size to start? Or sorry, what's the account balance to start? 2,500 bucks. What's our trade size to start? The amount of risk. Max half. Let's start with 1,000 bucks. So we'll start with $1,000 trade size off a of $2,500 balance. How many open trades can we do? Max, two. What if you see three or four beautiful trades, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life? How many trades can you do? Two. Yeah, but this time's different, right? That's discipline. That's where it comes into play. What are we making off of these in this account? A brick. What's a brick? It's a proper entry, an intelligent exit done according to plan. How many bricks do we want to make in a month? 10 max. You know, generally you're going to see five-ish. Five to 10. Some months it'll be very dry. You'll get fewer than five. Other months you'll have closer to 10. Never exceed 10. What if today is the 14th of September and you've done 10 bricks to date? Like, oh, this is great. And then you see a great setup tomorrow morning or tomorrow night when you do your homework. What do you do on Tuesday? Go to the beach. Right? Paper trade it. Do not put real money on there. Say, yeah, but what if that was a better looking trade than the ones that I did earlier in the month? Then you'll know if you're doing that often enough that you're trading crap earlier in the month. You you'll train your eye to look to only trade the most beautiful setups, okay? So that's the trading account. The next one is the income account. What's on the income account? How many trades do we do in a month? One. Do we do one every single month? No. Some months you won't get one. How big of a trade size do we do on this one? All. Every dime that we have? Our whole net worth? All? No. That account balance. So whatever the account balance is in the income account, we'll all in with that. Again, how many trades in a month? One. Gains we expect to see off of that are how much? Yeah, three to five percent per trade. Some months are going to be less. Some months you won't get a trade. Some months you'll have a loss. Some months will be bigger. Okay, but that's kind of our objective in doing that. What's the goal for that account balance? 20 to 30 times your current gross monthly income. Because the idea with the income account is to allow you, if you want to, to leave your job. In order to do that, then we need to replace your gross monthly income. So if we take, let's say you make, let's say you've got an account balance of 100 grand. And let's say you do 5% per trade, do about one a month. That says it'd be a $5,000 a month gain. That would say then that you could, in theory, quit if your income were five grand a month. Other way to back into it is take your current gross monthly income, multiply it by 20. That's going to be the minimum target for you to achieve in that income account. That would allow you to get to the choice for retirement. By the way, if you're wondering why I keep looking up my notes, I never do this. I should have said this early on. I'm recording today. 
So I may or may not be as profane and, and graphic as I normally am. I'll see how I feel as I go through it. But the reason I'm checking that, I want to be sure that when it gets laid down on a recording that I'm saying the things I want to say. So if you listen to it, you're catching the pieces on that. What that also says, too, is you are giving me the right, I guess I think how the attorney told me to say it, you're giving me the right to use your likeness in a recording. If you don't like that, there's an easy solution for you. The solution is, it's really two solutions, I guess. One, you can leave. Or two, just don't say anything. Right? Because it's a video, it's an audio recording, so if you don't say anything, no one will know you're in here. If you don't want your voice recorded, don't say anything. If you have a question, and you don't want to be recorded, just come see me on a break. Fair enough? Cool. Uh, next piece. Long-term holdings is our third account. What are long-term holdings? Stuff we hold for the long term. Pretty self-explanatory. How many do we want to have? Twelve. All in one sector? Spread it across. Twelve names. When are we going to sell them? Never going to sell them. What does that mimic? Who's a person we've all heard of? It's Buffett. It's basically what, what Buffett seems to do. So he buys something when it appears to be on sale by whatever metric he uses to determine if it's on sale, and he holds it forever. So that's what you're going to do with a chunk of your money. What will you ultimately do with that money? Because if you've got, if you've replaced your income on your income account and you got this trading account that's generating more dollars, why do you even need a long-term holding account? That's what you give away. That's what you're going to give to your kids that you're, when you pass on that goes to your heirs, your beneficiaries, charities that you want to donate to. It's attitude money, if you will. I was talking with somebody, I think it was at the end of the last class, and we were talking about whether one should own stock as something for a very long-term holding or own real estate. Put it in like, you go buy a fourplex, an eightplex, a 20plex, whatever it is. And if you do the numbers on this, what you want to think of in concept is rather than buying a fourplex and renting it out, buy four stocks and rent them out. Right? So you're owning stock to rent it out. And if you pick any, you know, I had you go look through the high-low homework. When, once you learn more about how to do this, if you go back and look and see, what would I get if I were to sell maybe a covered call out of the money on a stock that doesn't move very much on a percentage basis? You're going to find two months, three months of time, you might get a couple of points. So if you annualize that, it's 8 10% a year, worst case. Find a fourplex in a good area, one right around this area. Rents just down the street, about a mile down the street, and just to your to the south, towards the beach. Go for a two-bedroom place goes for probably fifteen to eighteen hundred a month. Three bedrooms probably go for about twenty-two. You do the math on that in a fourplex. Fourplex are going for about a million eight. How do I know this? Right. So they're going for about a million eight. You do the math on that. Your ROI on owning that rental with those kind of with that kind of price point and that type of rental return works out somewhere in the range if you've got very high occupancy of about three to four percent per year the thing is fully paid for wow that sounds great yeah but i can do that on a good month on a long-term holding that moves and i don't have to deal with phone calls right so there's pros and cons to both but just something for you to think about so that's your long-term holdings now, the other question comes, oh, what about 401ks? What about your retirement dollars? What are you going to do with those? 401k? What I'd suggest you do once you get the hang of do not do this tomorrow until you know what you're doing. When you see the setup in your 401k, then you can move the money into the appropriate mutual fund. 
that maybe mimics the S&P or the Dow or the Russell as an example. And if you see that set up there with all the, we're going to talk about that later on today, you could push your dollars into that mutual fund in your 401k, let it run up, take it back off the table, sit in cash for a while. Okay? You could do the same thing in your IRA. You could either do it in a mutual fund or in a ETF if you wanted to, diamonds, spiders, the Qs, or you could go into an individual stock. And we'll cover that a lot more through the sessions. Next piece, we talked about in the first class options, right? I've got calls, I've got puts. There's two types of options. One goes up when the stock goes up. That's calls, call up somebody. One option rises when stock price falls. I put down the phone. So puts rise in value when stocks decline. When would you use options? Or why would you use options? Leverage, strictly leverage. Options are a wonderful thing if you know what you're doing. Options are a very painful thing if you know what you're doing. They can absolutely smack you. They can also be a wonderful thing when they work. So you've got to understand that it's a very, very, very sharp knife and it cuts both ways. So you need to understand options are leverage. In order to look at options, I would learn focus first on picking stock direction. Be able to do that consistently, comfortably, confidently. And once you can do that, then you layer options onto that and understand, and then start trying to understand those. If you start with options first, there's a complexity there and an inconsistency that will frustrate the hell out of you. So rather than dealing with that, just focus on stock price movement. I'm going to show you how to do that today. Six, nine months from now, once you get comfortable with that, now you put options on top of that. And then it starts to click. What I've had a lot of people have done that usually takes them about two weeks at that point for options to make sense. If you start now, it'll take you nine months for options to make sense. If you even last that long, you get frustrated and quit. Fair enough? And what's the last point? Homework. How are we doing on the homework? So we're three, a couple of homework items I gave you to do on a daily basis. One was practice the news. First timers, how are we doing? Are we doing it? Who is doing it? Who's not doing it? Be honest. Oh, somebody's, oh, put it up loud and proud. Come on. <laughs> don't, hold, don't hang your head. You want to do it. Say, yeah, yeah, I know I've been busy. Life will always be busy for you. Right? You were busy a year ago too. You want to do the news homework. What it will show you is to teach you how news impacts or doesn't impact stock prices. Typically what you'll find, you're going to be right about 30% of the time. You're going to be wrong seven out of 10 times if you're doing this stuff correctly. What does that teach you? News is not what you think it is, but it doesn't say ignore the news because there are some very important news items that come out that you need to be aware of. You've got to train yourself to recognize and understand. That also hopefully will get you numb to the news so that when you hear a news event, you know, oh, you don't start freaking out because if you, when you make that phone call, you go, oh, I'm freaked out because you hear the news on ABC stock. Oh, yeah. How are you doing on your news homework? Oh, I absolutely suck at it. Oh, cool. So you're normal. Yep, still doing it. Yep, still doing it. And you're calling me because why? Oh, because there was new. Oh, shit, never mind. And it happens to all of us. And so you learn to try and get numb to that. So you got to keep doing the news homework. Other piece you should be doing is your market journal. Right? The idea on the market journal is to write down what you saw happen yesterday in the stock market and why you think it did what it did. And you want to do that on a daily basis, every single day. You start off and you say, I don't even know what to write. That's fine. Write something. Just write it down. doesn't matter. If you keep practicing, eventually it'll start to dawn on what you should be 
writing, what you should be collecting. Don't worry about it being correct. Just do it. Just grab the oars and row. You heard me say before, just shut up and row. What I mean by that, you literally grab the oars. If you start pulling on them, you'll figure out what you're doing right or wrong. Do your market journal. Write it every day. Most of the time, it's going to be a couple of sentences. There'll be a few times during the year where it's about a paragraph. There'll be a couple of times generally every year where it's about a page. So, well, why would it be a page? Well, why would you think? Shit hit the fan somewhere and the market pooped, right? And you're trying to jot down all the reasons why. But what about the days when it jumps up three, 400 points? And that may be a day too. The rest of the time, it's just going to be a sentence or two, okay? The idea is behind this, understand. I look, you know, we've got 100 people in the room, give or take. 25 years ago, and what would that have been? Someone do the math. 1986, is that about right? 1991, whatever the math is on that. There were 100 people in the room learning the stock market that are now engaged in the stock market, right? When they were sitting there 25 years before that, there were people doing the same thing. The, the stock market stays the same. The participants change, right? The names change, the faces change, but we're all still the human animal that reacts to some stimuli. We react either by greed or fear. And so if you, and because history repeats, if you've caught, if you've written down a log of history, you get the opportunity to go back and see what it did in the past when this type of event happened. Say, so, well, wait a minute, we never had a 9-11 type event before. Well, we had Pearl Harbor. That happened on a Sunday, right? How'd the market react after that? If your grandparents or whomever had written a log on that, you would have been able to go back and look. Now that you've captured it, your grandkids can go back and look. Right? We'll have another 9-11 type event. I don't know what it'll be. I don't know when it'll be. I'm not worried about it. You react accordingly. But the people are going to react the same way because we're the same human animal. So if you've captured that, you don't have to speculate as to what happened. You go back and look. Then you can see. Wonderful thing to do. Strongly urge you to do it. It will not take you long at all. All right, questions from class one. Anything bugging you? We're going to go through the options homework in a minute. Any other thing that's got it? Yes, sir. Why only 10 trades a month? My flip answer right off the top, you can't kiss every pretty girl in the bar. Okay, you got to be selective. The idea behind only doing 10, you're going to be in a trade for a couple of days, generally speaking. Every month, there are 22 trading days, 22 to 24, depending on the month. So if there's 22 trading days in a month, then how many could you do if you're in for a couple of days? Then it kind of works out that way. Generally, you'll find, too, it's like, well, I'm not going to trade every day. You're right. Well, what if I trade every other day Do we using that math? You won't do that either. You won't find that many good setups. If you do, you're chasing garbage. Say, well, how about if more than one position? Well, let's say you have two positions. It says you trade. The idea, the real idea behind it is to keep you from chasing crap, right? It's to control your emotions and not have you chasing your shadow and trying to make something pretty that is not. Generally, veterans, have you found any more than 10 good ones in a month? Not in a while. Definitely not in a while. Generally, you find a handful, give or take. But if, if you don't put some kind of upper limit on there, you'll go nuts. Emotions will take over. And then if you do that, usually you go broke too. So rather than having to worry about controlling going nuts, if we just limit the number of trades, then you'd be more selective. Easy way to do it. All righty.
Let me run through what was handed out to you. It should be the first couple pages in your book. Did y'all get a chance to read some of this beforehand? No? You should have. Uh, let's see. So page one says, welcome. Just to kind of run through, what is that page? Was that page four? Or page 59, sorry. This is not going to be easy to learn. Let me be really clear on that. I said it before, but let me hammer it again. It's not easy to learn. You're not going to learn it quickly. It's going to take a while. And it's going to take a while for a couple of reasons. One, the technical stuff we're going to talk about takes a while to get your head around. So that's going to make this a little bit slower than you would like. And then once you start to realize what an emotional beast you are, that's going to make it slow as well. Okay? So this is not quick by any stretch. The way I try and explain it to people this sometimes is imagine you're going through college. Now a freshman. You're in your first day of college. You say, I want to make some money before I finish up my first class or before I finish up the first semester applying what I've learned in college. Ain't going to happen. Right? Usually by the time you get out of college, you're lucky that somebody even hires you because you still don't know anything. You've just spent some time in a book. Right? You have no on-the-job experience, generally. It's going to take a while. Also, if you've got a short-term financial need that needs resolving, get a job. This is not the answer for you, especially starting out. This is not going to solve any type of short-term financial need that you've got, no matter how bad you want it to happen. Get a job. Do not count on this. Because what will happen is if, and there are people in the room that have tried it, and they end up getting a job. What happens is you'll start acting in desperation and frustration. So don't expect it to solve a short-term financial need. Once you get your head around this, the rewards with this are awesome. The financial rewards are wonderful. The, words, the rewards go well beyond that. It's a whole new different way of thinking and seeing the world. It's a wonderful spot to be. As you study the market, it's always doing one of three things. Either going up, it's going down, or it's going sideways. We're going to trade when it's going up or when it's going down. And when it's going sideways, you sit on your hands. To make money off the volatility. One can make money off the lack of movement. I, don't like, I know how to do it. I don't like doing it. Because usually by the time you realize that it isn't moving, say, let me put on a trade to capitalize that, then it starts, I think they watch me. As soon as I put on the trade, they go, oh, let's make it move and let's wipe him out. So it's much easier just to sit and wait for the volatility, what I have found. And so your objective then is to figure out and to learn how to recognize if the market is going up or down or sideways and then trade appropriately. Pretty straightforward. What else? little perspective. I'm pretty direct. I try and lighten it up with humor, or my, my version of humor. Some of you like it, some of you don't. That's fine. Um, I've been called politely blunt, a velvet hammer. I, I tell the truth. I had a guy come in at the end of, I think it was the end of the last class five, and he came up and he said, you know, I sent you a note three, four, five months ago about, I think he was taking another trading session. My wife sent it over, we kind of wrote it together. It's like, why should I do yours? And I guess I went back and I read the note since then. I can see he's in the room. He's kind of chuckling. Don't look for him. He's kind of smiling. But I went back and I read the note. And I just I said, look, here's the issue you're going to run into. If, and one of the comments he made in the note, well, he's my husband. This guy's going back to the class for some more mentorship. And why should I take your session? And I said, if you've got to go somewhere for mentorship, what happens when that guy dies? What the hell good is that? 
you got to know how to do this on your own. And I guess the way I phrased it, I was a little too blunt with him because he got kind of pissed off. But then as he sat through the session, he came out and he goes, every time that guy said something, I was thinking, damn it, he was right, he was right, he was right. And then it pissed him off even more. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. But I'm pretty blunt about this stuff. I'll just tell it the way it is, the way I say it. I may be wrong, I may be right, but it's, it's my experience. I've done pretty well at this over the years. Also, I'm not a tax guy, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a mental health care pro. I understand a lot about how those things work as they relate to trading. But I don't carry a license in those. So if you need assistance with that, please speak to somebody that is licensed and is professional doing that. I do have a securities license, however, which means I can't give advice unless I know a lot about you. I don't want to know a lot about you because I don't want to give advice. But I need to understand you know, your tolerance for risk. I understand where you are, where you're trying to get to, all this other stuff. So I cannot give you advice. It violates a fiduciary responsibility that I've got by holding the license. What that says is don't ask for specific advice on what you should do with stock A or stock B. Do I think the market's going up or down? Yes. Right? And I'll teach you how to read the chart, and then I'll just ask you, what do you think it's doing? You say, well, I think it's going up, right? It's going down. It's like, cool. That's how I would view it too. Right? But I'll show you how to do all that. Last paragraph up there. This thing is a marathon. It is not a sprint. It is a marathon. It is absolutely freaking grinding marathon of small steps. Small step, small step, small step. There's going to be times where it seems like you take two steps forward and three back. And then you'll take three forward and two back. It's very small steps. And there is no finish line. Well, there is a finish line. It's called death. Right? That's your finish line. I plan on doing this till the day I die. Right? You do this till the day you die, which is really kind of cool if you think about it. Most of you doing jobs today, you can't do it till the day you die. I was talking to a guy, and he's in the room. He sells technology, and he said, you know, it's a young man's game or an attractive woman's game. Right? You think of people in tech sales, young people, attractive females. Works that way in medical sales, works that way in technology. And once you start getting a bunch of gray hair, you're not the guy that they want out hawking their goods. It's a young man's game. In contrast, the law, lawyers, you want your lawyer to have a lot of gray hair, right? You want your accountant to have a lot of gray hair. You want your banker to have a lot of gray hair because they've seen stuff. But if they got a lot of gray hair and you're young, you're going to have to find a couple of doctors or an accountant or whatever because they're probably going to die before you're ready to, right? Think about that. The nice thing about being that person with the gray hair People value that experience. Next time you're watching CNBC, notice you don't see a lot of 22-year-olds coming on the screen. Right? It's all the old curmudgeon types. Especially watch it when the market is pooping. Right? We had the big down day on whatever it was, Thursday. If we get another big down day this week, the net, you know, when it, if you see it going on, flip on CNBC and just watch. They'll bring out the old guys. Well, we've seen this before. It looks like it did back in, you know, 42. This is what we saw. <laughs> Right? And they just talk about it. But, you know, they've seen all this stuff and they look very calm. It's the young guys that look freaked out. Guys have been doing this for the last five years and we've been doing nothing but going up. They're the ones that panic. Right? So you'll have to go through a few cycles of that to learn to recognize it. The other thing you can do, if we ever have a big day, any kind of movement a day, watch Kramer. Next time you're going to turn on uh, Mad Money, 3 o'clock in L.A., turn the volume off before he even starts talking. And just watch his face and then just write down without just try not to look at me as numbers behind him. 
Look at his face. You can tell if the market went up or down. Takes you about 20 seconds. If we went up big, he's got this big shit-eating ear-to-ear grin. And if we went down, it looks like his mom died. He's just very sullen and forlorn and just bummed. He's so easy to read. And then you could shut him off. You just got the market pulse. Took you about 20 seconds. Okay? Semantics are crucial in this. If you ask a question, don't be surprised if I ask you to repeat it. Because a lot of times the way you phrase the question, I can take it about three different ways. And I don't know which way you're asking. So if I have you repeat it, that'll at least tell me which, which path you were going down. Semantics are absolutely crucial in this because word placement and meaning can be entirely different depending how you phrase it. Trading and investing are not the same, right? The difference is the holding period. If you think about it, almost everything is a trade. Even your long-term holdings. Someone's going to sell it. Don't know if it's going to be you or an heir, but someone is going to sell it. So it really is still kind of a trade if you think of it. Although it may not happen, you may not see it sold for decades. But in order to be a success in the stock market, you've got to understand trading and investing and have skills in both. You've got to know how to, how to hold something for the long term. You've got to know how to hold something for a couple of days. Okay? Takes a while. Hey, dude, when are you going to get to the meat? You're getting the meat. And read through the rest. Uh, rules. Third paragraph. Oh, second paragraph. Um, why do you, we're going to paper trade for at least a year. Why? A couple of reasons. One, the market has a different personality at different times of the year. It acts differently in January than it does in about May, early summer, than it does in the fall. Totally different personalities. You want to go through it a year. You want to see one iteration of each one of those before you even think of putting a dime on the table. The second reason you want to spend at least a year on paper is that should give you, if you're working at this, that should give you adequate time to prove to yourself, one, that the rules work, two, that you understand them, and three, that you can apply them. And four, that they get you out at a profit and at a reasonable loss. Said differently, if you can't make money on paper trading, you're not going to do better with real money. It's going to be worse. So you want to be sure that your paper trading results are strong and what you want them to be before you put a real dime on the table. Because your emotions will get in the way and muck everything up. The vendors in the room nodded. Yep, he's right. He's right. He's doing it to me too. That's the reason why. The other thing to think about: if you're a doc, you have to have a license to practice. No, they don't say do medicine to practice medicine. They're always still kind of practicing, see if they can get it right. Right? If you're an accountant, you have an accounting practice. If you're a lawyer, you have a law practice. It's all about practice. And with those things, with the doc as an example, you're putting your life in that person's hands. Same with the anesthesiologist. They got to go through years and years and years and years of schooling in order to have that right to have your life in the palm of their hand. And yet what some of us will do is, you know, you'll read maybe half a book on the stock market and then you'll quickly realize there are no barriers to entry in the stock market. You have to have a couple of things. You have to have a pulse. 
You have to be over 18, you gotta have a few dollars to your name. And with that, you can go online to yourfavoritebroker.com and open up an account, fund it, and then you could start trading tomorrow. And you could lose as much money as you put in there by the next day. Overnight, gone, poof, gone. There are no barriers to entry in the stock market, which is the other reason it makes it very difficult to want to stay on paper for a year. Because you realize, I could just start doing this. I've been doing well on paper. Let me, I just want to see what it feels like. I just want to make a little bit of money. You've got to have the discipline. Stay on paper for a very long time because you want to know what you're doing before you start trading with real money. Vocabulary. I'm not going to step through all these. Read through these over the next couple of weeks. None of them are that difficult, but you'll hear me using these terms regularly going forward, and you'll hear these terms regularly in your trading career. Let me talk about the Greeks just briefly. The Greeks towards the bottom. They are five elements, for lack of a better word, five measurements that are used to measure the sensitivity of the price of an option to some quantifiable factor. Underline where it says strictly theoretical. They are all, it is in theory. In theory it's this, in theory it's that. Practice doesn't always match up. In theory it should be this. So the five Greeks, delta, gamma, theta, vega, rho. Delta is the easiest one to understand. What delta does is it measures if the stock moves a dollar, how much should the option move? Delta ranges from zero up to one. So is it 0 0.5, 0 0.7, 0 0.9, whatever it might be. So if the option, if the underlying stock moves a buck, then the option should move that amount of delta. So if it was a 0.5, the option should move 50 cents, okay? Now, does it stay that way forever? It does not, because then it recalculates, recalibrates, and it changes. How much does it change by? It changes by gamma. So gamma shows how much delta should change based on a dollar move in the underlying stock. Like, dude, this is hard. Well, yeah, it's not. As I just told you about all you need to know. Pretty much sum off what I have found, your need for understanding options is in those two pieces. 98% of it is tied to delta. Theta is time decay. In theory, how much the option will lose in value every day until expiration date. Vega measures the sensitivity of the price of the option as it relates to its volatility. Huh? Don't worry about it. Rho is a measure of the sensitivity and options price as it relates to a change in interest rates. So what do I use? I use delta. What about all this other stuff? Why do you, if you only use that one, why, you, why do you bother putting it all out there? Here, hear me loud and clear. There are lots of classes and books and courses and all kinds of knowledge you can pick up about options. You can take classes for $10,000, $20,000. They're out there. I've spent the money. And you'll come out of there with a PhD in options. You will be the god of options speak. And what I have found what you need is to understand delta. Delta tells you how much an option should move based on a dollar move in the underlying. So if I just need that, why do you put those other four up there? Because what it'll do is it'll save me responding to emails 
It'll save you going through, running down the rabbit hole of saying, wow, I heard this really cool stuff about if I understand options, it's the holy grail and it'll solve all my problems. If I could just understand how options work and all the mechanics of that. Save your time. Save your money. If you just understand delta, based on the way that I trade, you don't need any of that other garbage. Not garbage is the wrong word. You don't need any of that other stuff. Hopefully I just save myself 100 emails over the course of the next couple of years. Last one, we'll talk about Fibonacci sequence. It's kind of a cool thing. So Fibonacci, um, let's make this up. He was an Italian somebody or other back in about 1600. I don't remember his first name, but it actually was a guy named Fibonacci. He discovered a pattern in nature. And the pattern shows up by taking the, if you start with the number 0 and 1, and then the next number in the sequence, add, its, add the last two numbers together. So 0 plus 1 is 1, so that'd be the third number of the sequence. So it's 0, 1, 1. 1 plus 1 is 2. 2 plus 1 is 3. 5, 8. 8 and 5 is 13. 13, 8 is 21. 34, 55. 89, 144, 233. Huh. Why are you telling me that? Because it is the weirdest thing. I don't know why. You'll see it later on today. When you apply those numbers to time, you'll, and you look at a stock using those numbers, it is the weirdest thing. You can tell where it's going to go. It's cool. It's not 100%. And there's an art to it as well. But you apply those numbers in there, there's some phenomenal stuff that will jump out at you by just applying that. And that, why has it happened that way? Write this one down very clearly in bold letters. Don't ask Hanson why. He doesn't know, he doesn't care. <laughs> you can cut out the word Hanson. Don't ask why. Do not ask why. The market does all kinds of weird things. Some of it you look and go, I know exactly why it's doing that. The hell you do, you don't. So well, I don't know why it's doing that. I will agree. I don't know either. What you learn to do is you act according to what it's doing. Why is it doing something? I don't have, a, I could, I don't have any clue. I don't care. The other reason you want to don't ask why is because if we say the market's, let's say the market's in an uptrend and you, some, you're talking to your friends and go, I wonder why the market's in an uptrend and they'll come up with 10 reasons as to why it is. And then you'll jot all those down. And then what will happen is the market will switch, and now it will start going down. Yet all of those 10 factors you had listed are still true. Like, well, wait a minute. So that wasn't why it was going up. Exactly. So don't quit trying to figure it out. Just act, It's doing what it's doing. Act accordingly. If you try and figure it out, by the time you figure it out, all the factors have changed, and you missed the big downdraft. You went broke in the process. Never ask why. It, it'll, you'll waste your time. It is not worth doing. So that's Fibonacci's. Q-charts. For charting, there's a product that I use. It is called Q-charts. It's put up by a company called eSignal. Costs you, I'll tell you, 200 a month. It's a little bit under that. It's about 175, I think. I don't even pay that close attention to it. But if I tell you 200 and then it comes in under that, you'll be happy. If I tell you it's 150 and it comes in at 162, you're pissed off. Right? So I just tell you it's 200, it's a little bit under that. It's a charting package that I use. I don't have any affiliate relation. I get nothing from them. There's no linkages there. The product is not pretty. Let me be very clear. It is not the sexiest tool out there by any stretch. But son of a bitch works. 
And it, uh, if I could find a better tool, I would be happy to use it. If I could find one for free, I would be happy to use it. Haven't found one. The indicators that I use, I have found one place that has that with good response time. There's another one that was there that was free, but the response time, do you, do you all know who Charlie Munger is? You got Buffett, and then Buffer's, Buffett's right hand is a guy named Munger. And Munger is a, um, he's a little colorful in his language, I guess is the right way to say. He's about 92, something like that, lives up in Pasadena. Um, he is not afraid to tell you what he thinks. He's a great guy for quotes in that. He used a line that I heard years ago I love. And he said, somebody asked him, they said, here's the financials of XYZ Company. What do you think? And he's very profound. He said, you know, to call it shitty is an insult to sewage. <laughs> like, I love that. So they're the product that is free to call its response time shitty is an insult to sewage. It is horrible response time on the free product. It is worth spending the 200 bucks a month for Q charts. Okay? There are other products out there that look sexy. Lots of bells and whistles. They don't do what I need them to do. There's four indicators that I use with various time frames. Q charts is the only spot I've seen that does it. Do not waste your time checking to see if your broker's got something that works. It doesn't. I've looked at them all. I don't spend a ton of time looking at it. At some point, Q charts are going to go away. I already know that. And they said, ah, you know, it's on its last legs. But there's thousands of people that use it, so I don't think they're willing to boot everybody out and run the risk of losing them. But at some point, it'll probably get go end of life, sunset the product. When that happens, I'll go look for something new. Until that time, I'm learning to trade. Having a different charting package will not make you a better trader. So anything that you can keep that in mind too, jot that one down. If you're wasting your time on something, just ask yourself, will this make me a better trader? And what are we trying to do? Proper entry, intelligent exit according to plan. Will having a sexier charting package get you a proper entry, intelligent exit according to plan? No. Then do not waste your time. Just focus on that. I'll worry about which product we got to go to next. Okay? Do not take on that challenge, that responsibility. When you go to get the product, there's a guy at QCharts. <laughs> his, this is not in your notes. His name is Joe. I wish he had a more unique name. Literally, his name is Joe. He called me up a couple years ago and he said, you know, there's a bunch of people that call and they all reference you. Who are you? And thank you. And can, I, can you give me what you're giving them so if ever they call in, we can just help them do the setups? Like, oh, I'd be happy to. So that's his phone number. It's not in your book. You got to write it down. If you call Joe at QCharts with that phone number, tell him you're in the class. He will set you up with telling you how to download the product. And then I'm going to send you what's known as a workspace, either tonight or tomorrow. He will help you install that workspace on the downloaded product. It'll take you about 10 minutes. 800-322-1353. Joe, J-O-E. If he leaves, I got to update my slides. <laughs> oh, the next question comes up. What about a brokerage? What broker should I use? Whichever one you want. Well, which one do you use? It doesn't matter. I got about four of them. Maybe five, four or five. Pick whichever one you want to use. You say, well, should I go with Fidelity or Schwab? Or E-Trade? Or Scott Trade? Or Options Express? Or Options House? Or TradeStation? Uh, yes. <laughs> Figure it out. Why would I choose one versus the other? 
you're gonna look at it and say, well, commissions. Schwab is, I'm making up numbers. Schwab is $9.95 a trade. Fidelity $7.95. I definitely wanna to go to Fidelity because they're cheaper, it's two bucks. You know, you're gonna notice the $2 when you do a small trade at a thousand, you're gonna go, wow, if I'd have done this one, I'd have saved $4.82 if I'd have gone with a different broker, which is great. When you start pushing anything with substantial size, few thousand dollars, it's more about getting the fill. Did you get filled at the price you want? And you're not, I couldn't tell you what my commission rate is. I have no idea. So for buying stock, it's about 10 bucks. And where I had that, I think it used to be 12 a few years back. There was a student in the room when I first started doing this. He called up one and he said, what are you paying commission? It's like, hey, I don't know. I was looking at a trade. I had to go back and look. I paid $12.95, whatever it was. He goes, ha, I got you beat. I said, I don't really, he said, no, but I use the same broker. He said, you just got to call him and tell him you get it cheaper. Okay. A quick phone call. Hey, guy trades this much. I trade this much. Can I get a better rate? Sure. My rate through the broker I use, I believe is $9.95 up to a million shares. I've never, tra if I'll, I'll, I'd love to find out what happens north of a million shares. I've never done that one. But I pay 10 bucks basically to buy and to sell. Now think of what I'm focused on. So let's say you do any trades, you know, something with a lot of zeros, do $100,000. You're not going to notice the 10 bucks. What you are going to notice is if the broker gave you 10 cents better per share. Imagine you buy a thousand shares, you got it for a dime more. That's a hundred bucks. Does it matter you save $2 in commission? Doesn't matter. Then the other thing that will come in, if you have um, a little bit of gray hair on the top, some of us are, I think a politically correct way to say this. If you're young, let me say it that way, you're probably very comfortable doing everything online. If you're a little more seasoned in life, that, is that a polite way to say it? You have more experience in life? Maybe you want to go visit somebody at the brick and mortar spot for your favorite broker. If you want to go visit your money, just say, hey, how you doing? And just be sure my money's in here. Go, yeah, it's here. It's really not, but they'll tell you that it is. So if you want to go visit your money at the broker, then you're going to want to go with somebody that has a retail location, a Schwab, a Fidelity, or whatever. Right? If you do like Options Express, Options House, they don't have an on, uh, uh, retail. They don't have brick and mortar. So you got to be comfortable doing everything online. So with Fidelity, my opinion, their trading platform sucks. It ain't pretty. I just don't like it. So well, why do you keep an account there? Because if I had some crazy thought in my head, I wanted a question answered. It's Sunday at 110. I could call right now. They already have somebody there that could answer the question. They'd answer the phone, hello, Mr. Hanson, thank you for being a value client for the last 38 years, blah, 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 blah. Say, can you tell me about, they go, yeah, hold on, we'll get somebody for that. And that'll happen at three in the morning. They can always, and they're always so freaking incredibly nice. They write the book, or they should write the book on customer service. They're incredibly nice. Then what another broker said, I've got an account, they close at six o'clock. And you call them at 5.55, they let you know they close at six o'clock. <laughs> They are not nice, <laughs> but I love their trading platform. So I'm willing to put up with that. So you got to decide what you're most comfortable with. If you're okay with kind of attitude, then you choose one. If you want to be coddled and customer serviced, if you will, then choose the other. But there's no wrong answer. The other thing is whatever broker you pick, it is not a marriage. You can get out of a broker relationship in a couple of days. You open up an account at a different one, Say, hey, move the money from old broker to new broker. They'll initiate it for you. It'll get moved very quickly. So you're not locked in once you choose a broker. You just understand you can switch at any time.
So is it clear on there? I'm not recommending a specific broker. The one you pick is the one you should use. Okay? Questions on that so far? All right. So here's what we're going to cover today. Start with the homework. We'll go through money management, how to recognize a bull in a bear market. We're going to spend a ton of time on talking about fundamental analysis versus technical analysis. Then we're going to start dissecting a stock chart. And that's what we'll spend the rest of the day going through. You'll get some homework by the end of the day. And let's see, right about where it says candlesticks and trend is your friend and chart components, about page 90 up there, that's when the elephant goes thud. Okay, so just to understand, he's looming. He's hanging up on about the fourth floor of the hotel now. Here's what we'll cover in two weeks. We'll step through that. We'll cover that then. Three, five weeks and seven weeks from today. We'll wrap it all up. Okay, so options homework answers. Here's the options chain that was part of your homework. There's the answers. I'm not going to step through them all unless you've got a question. So my question to you, I guess, did you do the homework? Anyone not do it? Shame for shame for shame. My dog ate it. Do I need to run through any of these? Do you have questions on any of them? No questions, I won't step through. Which one? Didn't understand or didn't have time? So you took, you took, a, you took a shot at it? Okay. Let me back up here. So what's the first question? Thank you. What's the premium to buy the Jan 180 call? So I see calls up there on the left side. See that? So that's how I know I'm looking at the call piece. So I'm looking up there. I go down here for the strike price. I look for the 180. And I see, a, what is that? 1070 by 1105. So if I'm buying, remember on anything with an option, I get the price I don't want. So if I'm buying, I'd love to pay 1070, but I get the one I don't want, so I got to spend 1105. And options, they come in 100 share. The contracts are for 100 shares. So 1105 times 100 would be 1105 bucks. So that would be the answer to question number 1. Sorry, question number 2. And now with that then, actually how much it would cost me? Who says yes? Who says no? Why not? Commissions. So you might have to add for an option, I don't know, 10, 15 bucks on top of that, whatever it is. So your true out-of-pocket cost would be $1,105 plus commission. That'll be the only time you'll ever hear me say for the rest of my life in a class plus commission. It's always implied in there, okay? What's the next question on there? If you, if you're, how much you get if you sell it? So if I'm selling, I'd love to get a high price, right? But I get the price I don't want. So it says I get 1070 times 100, $1,070. I'll jump ahead a little bit. Let's say you bought the option right now. Spent 1105, cost you $1,105 plus commission. And then you look and go, oh crap, I didn't want to do that. I hit the wrong button. You got to close it. And so now you have to sell it for $10.70, right? You just lost, what's that, $35, $45, whatever the math is. You just lost it very quickly. So that's the, you ever sometimes, like this morning, and I've driven from my house to here at least 100 times. I could do it almost with my, I should try it with the eyes closed. But I, I know exactly where to turn. Guess what I did today? I turned the wrong place. I was daydreaming, went the wrong way. Now, what did I do? Did I keep going down the road and cursing it, going, wow, man, how could you have been so dumb? Or maybe it'll work. Maybe if I keep going west, I'll eventually hit the hotel. <laughs> right, I'll eventually hit the ocean. Right? I'm not going to hit the hotel. I had to turn east. And that cost to do it's like, oh, man, I wasted, you know, 
one-tenth of a gallon of gas or whatever it was to go around and make the U-turn. Do I sit there and curse about it? No, just close the trade, switch directions and go. But what some of you will do in a trade, you say, well, I'm already in. Let me just see. Maybe I can make my money back. Maybe it'll work. I cannot take that $35 hit. Close the freaking trade. You made a mistake. Don't stick around. What's the bid-ask spread on the 180? So the bid-ask spread, what's the difference between 1070 and 1105? The spread's 35 cents. So the bid-ask spread is 35. What's the next one? Premium to buy the 175 call or put? Call. So just look right up there. Take the price you don't want. $15.80, right? What's the time value of the 175 call? What's the stock at? 189 and change, right? Take that 189 and change number, subtract 175. What do you get? 14 something, right? Compare that 14 to the price. Sorry, it's 15, uh, let's see, 175 call, so it's 1580. So 175 plus 1580 minus the 189.83, that's the time value, okay? Next piece, what's the intrinsic value? $14.83. All I do is I take the current price, subtract the strike. The difference is the intrinsic value. What's the premium to buy the 200 call? If I want to buy the 200 call, 43 cents. Is that 200, is not on the thing, is that 200 call, is that in the money or out of the money? Out of the money, well out of the money, right? What's the intrinsic value of that? If something is out of the money, it says there's zero intrinsic, that's the definition. So if it's out of the money, there's no intrinsic value, you're spending nothing but time value. And we said the time value was 43 cents. If that was a little murky in going through it, just go through it again. Go through it again, go through it a couple of times. It'll start to click. I don't expect you to be a whiz at this up front. You don't need to be smarter. In fact, if you kind of kept up with me on this, you're ready for the rest of today. If you have no clue what I was talking about on this so far, you're still ready for today. We're not going to talk about options anymore. All right, so that was the homework piece. Yes, sir. Fabulous question. His question is, during the day, the price of stock jumps around and the bid ask will change. The price to buy or sell stock will change during the day. Does the same thing happen with options? The answer is yes. What causes options prices to move? Stock price movement and volatility. Either real volatility or implied or perceived or hoped for or afraid of volatility. We'll come up on Fed announcements here next couple of weeks, whenever it's scheduled to happen. If you have the time during the day, watch the market just for a couple hours before they do the FOMC minutes, before they release FOMC minutes. And you'll see if you look at it on a five minute chart, it'll look like a dead patient in the hospital. It's just doing nothing. And what happens is once they make the announcement, then you'll see the market go boom, boom. It snaps up, snaps down, whatever it's going to do. But for the chunk of time just before they announce, it just flatlines. There's nothing going on because everybody's just waiting. I don't want to be the first guy to the party because I don't know if they're going to raise rates or drop rates or keep them the same, whatever they're going to do. And the market just goes dead. And so you'll see options prices will tighten up. And then a little bit in advance of that, or at some point in advance of that, they'll inflate the option prices. 
even before they release the minutes. Why is that? Because the market maker knows that you're going to want to get in for an opportunity to profit one way or the other, or take a loss. You don't want to take a loss, but to profit, whether you think it's going to go up or down. He's going to charge you to get in. So it's kind of like going to a very popular nightclub. There's a bigger cover charge at the door than going to a place that's dead. So don't try and game like, oh, I know they're going to announce, so let me buy an option five minutes in advance. You'll get screwed. Okay? They're not that clueless. It's a ruthless game. So I'm saying they know the rules. You're just stepping in. Your job is to learn the rules and then operate accordingly. Okay. All right, next piece is money management. It's on page, what, 71? Is that right? 72. Do me a favor, take out a blank sheet of paper before we even talk about this. Have a little fun with this one. Take out a blank sheet. I'm going to have you draw two pictures on that blank sheet of paper. So you can divide it in half, top to bottom, left to right, don't care. First one, what I want you to do is draw a, a something that you would hold your trading account in. Remember the trading account. It's a relatively small amount of money. Now I'm going to reach in and I'm going to pull money out of there and do five to ten trades a month. Draw some pictorial representation. If you're from UCLA, that means draw a picture. Draw a picture <laughs> of what you think that would be. Did they win yesterday? So draw a picture of what you think would be a good holder, a vessel, a container, a something for your trading account. Something you're going to put a few dollars in, and you're going to run a few trades every month from that account. When you get that, look up at me. Got it? Doesn't have to be that good. Just, just go through a little exercise, get you to think a little bit. Next thing I want you to do, on the second half of that page, I want you to draw a vessel, a container, or something where you would put your long-term holdings. Long-term holdings, something you want to own forever. What might you store that in? What might you hold that in? Always fun to see what people come up with. All right, we got it done. So she drew, doesn't matter what she drew. This is for her trading account, basically a square, right? I would think of it as kind of like a basket, right? You reach in, you're going to pull out. It's like Johnny Appleseed. You reach in, you pull some seeds out, you're going to plant, and you're going to throw them out in the air, and hopefully some of them will catch, okay? At the rate of five to 10 a month. And her box that she drew is about the size of my thumb. It's probably two inches by two inches. Okay? Now look at the other thing she drew for her long-term holdings. A little bit smaller, and it looks like it's like a file drawer. I'm assuming, is that what it is? Okay, yeah. <laughs> so it's a file drawer. But what's interesting to me, look at the difference in scope, in size. Her trading account drawn is almost twice the size of her long-term holdings. What I want you to picture, Alyssa, is this. Your long-term holdings, imagine this room, about waist high, filled with hundreds, and you have to wade into it. You don't walk on the top of it. You've got to push it to the side to move through. You're like you're walking through a three-foot deep pool of water. That's what you want to think of for your long-term holdings. Your long-term holdings is really going to be a store of wealth. I want to see you with bazillions. You're the youngest person in the room, I believe. I want to see you with bazillions of dollars in that account. Not by tomorrow, not by next week, but in decades. Right? Bazillions of dollars in there. 
you can't even fit a quarter in that, right? And so what's, and not, not picking on you, just to get you to think, what you realize is you want to have, you want to envision something that's massive and huge. I'm okay with the size that you did for the trading account, but this one should take like the rest of your notebook. And just think that, because you want this thing to be incredibly massive, where it can hold tons and tons and tons of money, and not coins, but paper money. There's a message behind that. You got to be careful of your mental, or be aware of your mental programming. You're thinking that you could fit it in a small little cup, a little box. No, you want it to be huge. Your long-term holdings is where your wealth is, right? You're in, ah, I want to get to the point I can retire. Great. But what then? You want to have massive piles of money. Think of what Buffett's got, right? He's got three, I don't even know the number, hundreds of thousands of shares of Coke, right? Hundreds of thousands of shares of Washington Post. What was it got? Um, Gillette was bought by, I'm drawing a blank, P&G, right? Tons of shares of all these various companies. He can't fit it in a file cabinet, right? It's massive. That's what you want to think of for your long-term holdings. It's huge. Key point on that, be aware of how you think. So your financial house, you've got four walls to the house. The first one is your trading wall, if you will. Your trading account. We start with how much money there? 2,500 bucks. And we're going to do how many trades? Five to 10, right? So 2,500 bucks. Trade size is again, how much? Max half, start with 1,000 bucks. I wouldn't even go as high as half. You always keep it under. Max, do $1,000 to start. We're going to do that for a period of time. Then we're going to move money into our income account. We'll grow from there. Different way of seeing this. I think I had you guys draw this last time. Yes, sir. So his question was, how do I see an options chain? If I don't have a stock, if I don't have a brokerage account, I think it was where you, let me answer, let me answer what I think you're asking. If I'd missed it, correct it. Okay, so what he's saying is if I want to set up an, if I want to be able to see the options chain at a brokerage, do I have to fund the account? The answer is no. So you can set up an account at AB, your favorite brokerage. If they say you must put in money, say, are you sure? If they say absolutely yes, say goodbye, <laughs> go to another one. Right? You will be able to set up a trading account without any money in there. Or, sorry, set, you, can, you can establish an account with $0. They'll call you every once in a while and say, hey, did you want to fund that eventually? You go, yeah, eventually I do, but just not now. If they do, go to another one. They, you know, they run all those TV ads. They know how much it costs to get a client. They've already got you in. They're going to call you and go, hey, please send in some money, but you can, you've learned to say no. If, you, if it bothers, and if you, the other way to think about it, Put some dollars in there, call it a savings account. You just move money from your savings account into ABC brokerage. And just let it sit there. Don't ever trade it until you're ready to do so. But it's just sitting there. And they're going to, you know, interest rates being what they are today, after about a year, you might get paid a penny or two. And you're going to get nothing for it. It doesn't matter. But it's basically you're just parking it there. If you need, if you have the means, if you're willing to do it, just drop some dollars in there to get the means to do that. But you shouldn't have to do that. Okay? Yahoo, does Yahoo Finance show options chain not live during the day? If they do, it's a 20-minute delay. So you can see live up to the minute price with, a, with, a, uh, with your favorite broker. Okay? The next page is titled Money Management. So this diagram here with the boxes on it, I had you fill it in last time. Here's a completed sheet for you. So if you missed anything, you've now got a completed form of that. 
So we're going to start with our trading account, trading options. Less than half the money goes into open trades. Our trades are done same size amount, same amount of dollars at risk on an options trade. You're going to start, ready for this? Your target when you get in, it's really simple, a dollar. Make a dollar in profit, get a loss of a buck, get out. A buck and out, we'll cover that in a little while. Your exit point is a dollar. You make a dollar, thrilled. If you lose a dollar, oddly enough, you're thrilled. Right? You don't want to lose $2, so you're thrilled you lost a buck. So a buck, you get out. Five to ten trades per month. Typically what you'll see, I put a 20% per trade, kind of an average ROI. That's at about a dollar. Once you get going at this, you'll see ROI is better than that. You'll also see losses bigger than that too. Remember that knife cuts both ways, which is why we've got to have a disciplined money management approach. So we then, uh, we also have an income account. The objective for that is to have 20 to 30 plus times your monthly income in that account. Looking to do one trade per month. Some months you won't get one. We trade stock in this account. And in that account, we go all in on that account balance. So we're going to buy stock. Whatever the account balance is, we go all in. Now, if you're funding that account today with a lot of money, do not go all in to start off. You've got to build up to it. We'll cover that in a few minutes. You're going to do the same size trades. What does that mean? It means you go all in. Saying it the same way. 3 to 5% is generally what you'll see on a per trade basis. We're going to do this primarily around the catalysts of splits and earnings, which we'll cover in classes 3 and 4, I believe. Okay? We're also going to have dollars in the long-term holdings. Long-term holdings, we're going to own stock up to 12 companies. 10 to 12 would be fine. Don't go more than that. Don't go less. We want to diversify it across sector. You want to be sure they're doing business in China or India or end India. The reason why is that's where a ton of people are. There are growth opportunities there. It's rare to find someone now, a multinational, that's not doing business in China and India. A few years ago, that wasn't always true. It's rare to, today. So just keep that in mind. You're going to look to buy these on sale. And I, I put that up there and people go, well, uh, how do you know when a stock's on sale? They don't put a sign out. How do you know? So, and they'll say, well, you know, Buffett doesn't buy it on sale. Like, are you sure? Buffett's sitting on tens of billions of dollars in cash. I'm sure he'd love to buy more shares of Coke. Or he already bought Burlington Northern. Who else he owns? He owns stock in IBM. Right? Love to buy more shares of those. Wells Fargo. How come he's not putting the money to use then? I think it's because they're not on sale. Doesn't meet his metric for what would be considered a good value. So he's willing to sit on the cash. Said differently, if Buffett can sit on billions, you can sit on a few thousand dollars yourself and wait for the opportunity to present itself. Don't let the money burn a hole in your pocket. Learn to develop some patience. In the long-term holdings, we're going to insure those against down moves when they set up. We'll teach you how to do that. We're also going to use covered calls to generate some income. Sorry, generate some return off of those. What kind of return might you see? Depends on the stock. Sometimes it's zero. You might get as much as maybe 2% in a month. All depends on the stock and how active you choose to be. 
TD stands for tax deferred or tax advantage, I suppose it should say, but if I made it say TA, you think that was trading account. An IRA could be Roth, could be a traditional, could be a rollover, could be a SEP, does, could be a KEO, doesn't matter. 401k is what it is. In that account or in those accounts, we're going to trade either stocks, if you have the means to do, some 401ks allow you to trade stocks or in your IRA you would trade stock, or you're gonna trade with mutual funds, depending what your 401k offers to you. Once you are comfortable with this and have built up to it, then you would go all in, in that account, ride it for a little bit, move back to cash. Number of trades you'll see in a year, it says up there 12 to 18. Sometimes you'll see even maybe as many as six. All depends on what the market is doing and what it gives you. Don't look at it and say, oh, I've only done five trades this year and it's already September, I gotta get busy. If it hasn't given you any trades, it hasn't given you any trades. You don't force the number of trades. You're looking to do quality, not quantity. And your return is gonna vary. Last piece, let me talk about this a um, little bit. Gold and silver, strongly urge, can't say recommend, strongly urge that you consider owning gold and silver, not an ETF not a gold miner, literally the physical metal. At some point, buy some gold, buy some silver. So the reason you want to own gold and silver, have any of you heard of the book Creature from Jekyll Island? Have any, has anyone read it? Who's not read it? Read it. If you want to put that to the front of your reading list, read it. It's on the list, Creature from Jekyll Island. It's a history of the Fed. It explains the banking system. One guy in the back of the room just went, your eyes will open up when you read this book and you'll be pissed off. You'll be a little scared. You're going to be pissed off. What it does is it explains the banking system. It explains the history of money. And when you understand the history of money and you look at what we're doing here in the U.S. and around the world, then you'll be pissed off and a little bit afraid. And then you'll understand why I say buy gold and silver. Okay? The idea behind it is, throughout the history of man, gold and or silver have been the store of wealth since our ancestors were, I don't even know, way, way back when in time. What about bitcoins? Come on. I don't have any clue. Have some gold, have some silver. The idea is, if this, you know, I've got, I don't want to get my pocket, a couple hundred bucks probably. I get, I get some ones, fives, tens, I got a couple hundred. I've got three, four hundred bucks in my pocket. Why is this worth three or four hundred dollars? Because we agree it is, right? And this will buy me, you know, buy me, I don't know, five will get me a gallon of gas and a hundred will get me a tank of gas, right? Why? That's the agreed upon, the exchange rate, if you will, not in a currency exchange, but the exchange rate for the service or the good that I want to buy. But it literally is just a piece of paper. It's made out of some funky stuff. It's got some neat holograms on there, and we agree that it's worth five or 10 or 20 bucks or whatever it is. But there's no value to it. It's just what we agree to. What happens if we were to no longer agree that there's value there? It's useless. So you look at that and you go, huh, what happened? Let me think. If I go back in time to 1700s, if I go to Spain, Spain was, they used money back then. I'm just picking Spain. It could be any Portugal. Then pick any country you want. It doesn't matter. They had a medium of exchange back then. And we swapped money back and forth for goods and services. Cheese, goats, whatever stuff we were buying, right? 
if I were to find some Spanish money from back then, how much is it worth today? Collector value. That's it. But I can't walk into the bank in Spain and say, I want to make a deposit with this stuff from 1700. They won't take it. What about, how about a continental? You know what a continental is? Continental is, is currency from the United States back in the 17 or 1800s. I don't remember the year. What's its value today? Collector value, zero. Oh, so the U.S. has had a dollar, if you will, that went to zero. It's not worth anything today? Yep, we have. There's stories back in World War I. I don't know if it's true or it's a good story. There's a woman pushing the, a wheelbarrow down the street filled with German marks. And she was held up. And they took her wheelbarrow and they left the money. Right? It had, the money has value only because we agree that it does. If you look at what we're doing today, what the Fed is doing, they're printing money hand over fist. It loses value as a result of that. Will it, will it crash? I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me the way we're going, but I don't know. Excuse me. Because of that, since I don't know, I want to have a little bit of protection in case it does happen, which is why I would say go buy some gold, buy some silver. Read the book. It'll make sense. Or what I'm saying will make... If, if you read the book, what I'm saying will make sense. You make your own opinion off that. Do what you want to do. How much should you buy? as a percentage of your net worth? That's a question for you. I would not go all in. So if you've got a net worth of this many zeros, don't take all of it and go buy gold and say, man, I hope the currency crashes. <laughs> right? You don't want to see that happen. Because once the money is tied up in gold, you can't do anything with it. You can bury it in the backyard, but you can't do anything with it. But if the, if the currency were to collapse or have an issue, at least you have something that has value. Does that mean we're all going to, if the currency were to collapse, are we all going to be destitute living in a cave? No. There'll be something there, but I don't want to have to worry about it. So well, then the next question comes up, how much should I, you know, how, what should I do, what should the mix be between gold and silver? And the answer is yes. Whatever you think makes sense, if you've thought about it, that's the right answer. I think of it this way. To me, gold is the $100 bill and silver is the dollar bill. I don't want to just have gold and then have to go buy a loaf of bread with an ounce of gold. Right? I'd rather have silver. I think of silver as kind of the small change. Is the way I think about it. That may be right. That may be wrong. Some people will come up and say, yeah, but historically the value of silver to gold has been you know, X to 1, whatever it is. And today it's much more or much less than X to 1. So I'm going to buy more of it. Whatever, that's fine. If that's what you want to go with, that's fine. But at least have some of both. So you figure out the mix and you figure out what percentage of your net worth should be in that. And I'm fine with that. Then the next question that comes up is, where do I store it? Personal opinion, I would not put it in a gold storehouse. Because if something ever were to go wrong, where are people going to look for gold? In the gold storehouse. Well, does that mean the marauding thieves? Yeah, I don't know. It could be, or the government. I have no idea. Not to be a conspiracy theorist. I just don't know. So bury it in the backyard. Bury it in my backyard if you want. I, I'll help you. <laughs> you know what I mean? But store it somewhere where you can get access to it. Could you put it in a safe deposit box at the bank? You could for a period of time. But if you start to sense that you know, things are getting a little dicey, I would move it out of there because you never know. One of the books on the book list, there's a don't, 
hear me loud and clear, don't turn to the back of the book. In the back of the book, there's a book list of about three pages, probably two, 300 books there. One of them is a book entitled Pitbull by a guy named Buzzy Schwartz. He was a broker back in 60, something like that in New York. He's got an audio book of, his, of this book called Pitbull. The guy swears like a sailor. Every other word begins with the letter F. Um, it's funny to, so if, it depends who's in the car with you. It can be funny to listen to. If you've got kids in the car, it's not cool to listen to. Um, but he tells the story in there back in, I think it was 74 or something like that, when the uh, oil was going nuts. He sent his wife down to the bank to pull the gold out of their safe deposit box. And he says she was walking down Fifth Avenue with like 100 grand in two shopping bags, just walking down Fifth Avenue, and people had no idea. It was very heavy. They just pulled it out. So just, and he didn't say she was just walking, and there were a couple of descriptive terms that would go with that. It's kind of funny if you listen to the audio book. But the point is, when he saw that it was getting potentially a little dicey, that's when he moved it out of the safe deposit box and figure out wherever he was going to hide it in New York. Okay? Make sense? Questions? Not trying to be doom and gloom, fear and, fear and loathing, whatever the right word is. Just give some thought to it and take some action. How would you know when to buy it? Well, I'm going to show you how to read charts. Gold and silver chart out the same way that a stock does. You can wait for a charting reason to buy and buy some. Okay? What's the difference with an ETF with gold? We cover that and then we'll take a lunch break. Um, an ETF is an exchange traded fund. I don't understand entirely or specifically how they do this, but they essentially, you can buy an ETF that, and they have a claim, they say, on gold. How do you cash in that claim? And what if there's not enough gold to match all the shares in the ETF of people that want it? What happens? I don't know. But if I've got the gold coin in my hand, I just got to brush the dirt off from being buried in the backyard and I can deal with it. That's why I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the ETF. I would just buy the physical asset. That's the way I think about it. Because I don't have to worry about it. That help? Okay. Yes, sir. So his question is, do you buy bullion or do you buy collectibles? Uh, or minted, I guess is the right. I'm not an expert at this stuff. I personally buy bullion because it's cheaper. I just want gold. I don't care if it says Panda or Krugerrand or whatever. It's gold, right? I'm not worried about the collector value. I'm doing it as a store of wealth in case the poop hits the fan, right? So just straight bullion is fine. Figure out from there, okay? Let me do this. Rather because this is, there's not a good, this is probably a good long discussion on the money management piece. Let me take a break, because if I keep talking on this, I'm not at a good break point for lunch. So I got 10 to 2. Can I make you eat quick? We're going to be here till at least 8 tonight, the way I'm going. I'm going to go a little bit long. So if you need to call and arrange babysitter, I'm going to talk for a while tonight. How about if we start up again at about 2.30? I'll try and cut a little bit short. So wrap up lunch by about 2.30, and then we'll jump into this stuff.